I am glad you're all here this evening. And I still consider this the new year, the beginning of the new year. So it still fits into our New Year's resolutions. And last week, since it was the, at least it was my first Tuesday evening of the year, I thought about some of the things that might be useful uh, to seeds to plant at the beginning of the year that might be useful in, in causing us to experience our deepest longing to be happy. Anybody here not want to be happy? I think what binds us all is the desire to be happy and to be free of suffering. So one of the beautiful and simple things about the and elegant about the Buddhist teaching is he wasn't interested in in the meaning of life. He wasn't interested in metaphysics and positing theories. He was interested in the fact that we all want to be happy, the fact that we suffer, and to and he, his methodology was to see what are the causes of our suffering and to remove them, and what are the causes of happy happiness and to cultivate them. So it turns out that it doesn't, we don't need to look far to find out that so much of our, our mental suffering, even our physical suffering, comes from living in ways that are, um, that where we harm ourselves and harm others. We, we harm each other with, um, by our aggression, by striking out, by not uh, holding on a constant basis a reverence for life. We cause suffering through our words by, uh, by having our, the engine of our words be sometimes hatred and, or greed or, and not be harmonious, not be for the benefit of who we're speaking to, not often very timely, uh, may be true but not very useful and so many, many ways that we cause ourselves suffering through our words, through our sexuality, uh, through our use of intoxicants that, um, that we somehow, because of, of a lack of, of attention, don't know when to quit, don't know when we've hit that point of carelessness or heedlessness. So these are some of the causes of suffering and to remove some of those causes, to practice a reverence for life, practice wise speech, practice wise actions, wise sexuality, wise use of intoxicants, uh, just to live in a way that's wise. And to plant the seeds every day of those ways of being with ourselves and with each other that bring well-being. What brings reliable sense of well-being is our hearts uh, having a reverence for the, the living beings within us and around us. It just it opens us. It reminds us that we, we don't live alone apart from each other. If we have this thought of being, having reverence for life, it's a great thing. If we are harmonious in our speech, we tend to not have a lot of aggressive speech coming back at us, tend to create in our own small way a field of goodwill, a field of, of, um, of harmony. 
if we're not exploitive in our sexuality, people don't have to, uh, we don't have to be replaying the effects of things that we did or said or, or ways that we acted that we may regret or may have caused some harm. We, if we're motivated by caring, we will we'll generally move in the direction of having more harmony in our relationships. If we keep our, our minds clear, not taking intoxicants to the point of heedlessness or carelessness, we will have much more clarity of mind. And with clarity of mind, we tend to uh, have much more sensitivity to what's wise and what's one unwise action. So everything, so much of our work, what might be called worldly happiness, happiness in general, depends on uh, how we act. And that's something that was within our power to attend to. And the new year is a great time to commit ourselves, to be passionate about uh, the decision to be happy, first of all, and to have one of the causes of our happiness, living a life of non-harming. The Buddha called the effects of a life of non-harming the potential to experience the bliss of blamelessness. That you don't have to be constantly experiencing the effects of your of your actions of body, speech, and mind, and that and your purity. What he also called purity of action, he also described as the um, as uh, offering to others what he called the gift of fearlessness. And what he meant by that is that no one has to be afraid of you, because essentially. What someone sees is what they get. You, you literally give off a kind of scent of non-harming and safety. And part of our practice is to be safe with ourselves, and ideally that also promotes safety with others. So that's what I talked about last week. The second kind of purity that the Buddha, purification that the Buddha talked about talked about in the first part of the what's called the Noble Eightfold Path, part of the fourth uh, truth that the Buddha told on his, the, first, uh, the first discourse that he gave 2,700 years ago, the fourth truth that there's a path that we can cultivate, follow in our lives that leads to happiness. And this is not something to be adopted as a belief system or a view, but to be practiced, to be seen, to be understood here and now for those who are interested to see for themselves whether it works. So anything you hear tonight, I don't want you to believe it. Don't believe anything. But see, be willing to clarify your view to the extent that you can see whether what I'm saying is true or what he said is true. So the fourth truth that he shared was that um, there's a path that one can cultivate. And it has three main parts to it. It's in the Pali language, for those who are interested, it's sometimes called Sila Samadhi Panya. Sila is that foundation of our life of non-harming, of ethics, of morality, of great care with our actions of our body, our speech, and even, the, the, even care for uh, how it is that we incline our thoughts. 
So that's called purity of action or purification of action. It also includes, besides wise action, it includes a wise livelihood. It means being sensitive about both what we do, uh, ideally not being engaged in a kind of livelihood that, that has the effect of causing suffering in people's lives. Like dealing in intoxicants, dealing in weapons, dealing in things like that, that where there is a, it's a kind of obvious, obvious um, cause of harm in people's lives. And that's sometimes not so easy to, to, to see. So the obvious ones are weapons and intoxicants, but there are not so obvious ones. And we... And that's part of the study that we do. Is what I am doing, what I'm engaged with every day, the cause of well-being and happiness in people's lives? Does it promote that? Or does it actually detract from happiness in people's lives? Then the second part of wise livelihood, and I'm not going to elaborate on this tonight, the second part of wise livelihood is, is whatever livelihood you do, that you do it in a way that is... Um, that is a field for you to cultivate all those, those wholesome qualities that, um, that are worth developing, that you, you act with your co-workers uh, in uh, harmonious ways and kindness and following those basic training precepts and guidelines that help promote um, happiness. So using, using the, the practices as the hub around which you do your livelihood turns... Uh, virtually any livelihood into a field of practice. So that's a, something that we can reflect on. Is it wise livelihood? And am I doing whatever livelihood I'm doing wisely, lovingly? Love is really a central part of, of is it the, it, does it promote an, an open heart and uh, caring, uh, both the way I'm doing it and the livelihood itself. So the second part, so that's all, that's all called purity of action. The second part of the, what's called the Noble Eightfold Path is called purity or purification of mind. And that's where our, our meditative training comes in. And our meditative training is, uh, is the center of that, the navigator of the entire so-called Noble Eightfold Path is the practice of what is called Sati Sampajanya, otherwise known as mindfulness. Mindfulness with clear comprehension. That which has become the, the rage in the world right now is, is mindfulness. But it all started with this, uh, of course it's a natural capacity that every human being has, but the, the Buddha highlighted it as a central, central cause of happiness in this very life. And the Noble Eightfold Path, that middle part, purification of action, has within it three parts. Three parts of, of what enlivens our, our mindfulness strengthens it and allows it to become the cause in our lives of, of more clarity about our actions and then more clarity about our understanding. It helps us understand our life in such a way that we can, to, we can start to live more in harmony with life the way it is. And I'll say more about that maybe next week. It'll, it'll slip out this week, but I'll focus on that more next week. 
So I was thinking today about, because it's the day after Martin Luther King Day, and people often think of, of mindfulness and they relegate mindfulness to this the simple act of doing what you're doing when you're doing it and knowing what you're doing, being conscious of what you're doing, clearly comprehending what you're doing, and what you're doing with your eyes, what you're doing with your ears, what you're doing with your nose, your tongue, your body, your mind, and knowing what your, what your external actions are. And it's often this seen and understood as this, this wonderful uh, observing power that we have the capacity to grow in ourselves. But often the, the understanding of mindfulness is, is limited to what's the side of mindfulness which is called bare attention which is learning how to experience things in such bare simplicity, free of the overlay of our concepts and thoughts that we develop a very intimate experience of life just as it is. And that bare attention is essential in connecting um, beautifully with life. I actually have a, um, I have a poem from one of our Sangha members. Are you, would you be okay if I read one of your poems? I think she'll, she won't mind. This is from Noemi, who's sitting right up front. This is her poem entitled, Cutting an Apple. I feel my breath and the movement of my hand slice the fruit in half, then into quarters and eighths, and finally into cubes of oatmeal, cubes for oatmeal. A simple act bringing me back home, a place within me that feels complete, where I am lighter than a cloud and rooted into earth like an oak. My true nature touches all that is sacred and ordinary, alive in a spirit beyond explanation, yet often this true nature is buried in ego and the chaos of fear a fear of an outside world of fast machines that know nothing but ones and zeros, not knowing the cries of the soul. So in this world where people are fettered to gadgets instead of embracing the heart, my ego helps me survive the hard edges. But I am not my ego, for beyond that lives a true nature touching the wholeness of life in the simple act of cutting an apple. so easy to miss that place that place where we touch all of life just in the simple act of cutting an apple and so it's beautiful to cultivate the side of mindfulness that is bare attention but bare attention is in the teachings always mixed with clear comprehension and Noemi's poem also includes clear comprehension of where she's living, the time she's living, who she's living with, where people's minds are. And if we are present, we, we recognize, we comprehend, not just in that intimate, bare sense of mindfulness, but we 
we are sensitive to our times. We're sensitive to, to the issues of injustice, of diversity, of everything. We can't help it if our mindfulness is complete, both with bare attention and clear comprehension. And I was thinking of Martin Luther King yesterday as somebody who encompassed that union of bare attention and clear comprehension. And out of that, and this also cuts through some of the misunderstandings about mindful attention, about bare attention with clear comprehension, is that it, it usually, if we are sensitive, if we are awake, if that mindfulness is trained, it expresses itself. And of course, everyone expresses it differently, but it expresses itself as a deep passion for life. Wherever it touches us and whatever it is that, that, that enters our, our clear comprehension, whatever enters our awareness. And when I, was, when I was thinking about, everybody knows the story of Martin Luther King, but it, one of the things that kind of blows my mind is that he was arrested 30 times before he was 39 years old. The kind of passion, the, the sense of the, of the compassion, the sense of the heart that flowed from his sensitivity to the situation that he found himself in, the, the conditions of, of this world. And to me, that is a, he is a beautiful embodiment of the power of mindfulness. And I was thinking of also today when I was thinking about mindfulness and clear comprehension, how, um, how we are all in some way works in progress in our clear comprehension. Many, um, I was listening recently to a a Dharma talk by one of my mentors, to me, my root Vipassana teacher, Joseph Goldstein, who I've always considered the preeminent Western Dharma teacher. I was listening to a talk that he gave on uh, diversity. And he described in the 70s, in the 1974, when he came back from having spent uh, six years in India practicing with many teachers, but particularly with a wonderful Indian teacher named Anagarika Munindra, he came back and he ended up by, by a kind of magic uh, confluence of, of forces uh, in Boulder, Colorado at Naropa Institute where he met Jack Cornfield and they started and he was invited to teach Dharma and then before he knew it there were people, hundreds and thousands of people coming to his retreats and uh, the, the Dharma was just proliferating. And then one day, about uh, 20 years into the teaching uh, mission or whatever he called it, his teaching career, someone came to retreat and said, do you notice that, um, that this, is a, this is an intensely proliferating, joyous movement that's happening, this, this dissemination of mindfulness in the West, but almost everybody here is white. And the, the amazing thing, it's one of those, those phenomena that, that uh, 
meets the definition of the word emaho, the Tibetan word that says how amazing. The amazing thing is that nobody noticed. And that's what really blew his mind. He hadn't noticed. And this is really the, the um, effect of the shroud of privilege, the shroud of, of whiteness, you could say, the shroud of, of affluence. And it was a place, in spite of all of the bare attention and all of the different levels of clear comprehension, was a source, it was an obliviousness. And that became, uh, uh, it became, uh, obviously it was humbling. And, uh, and the cause of a, of a widening of the scope of what mindfulness and clear comprehension means. It's re- remembering that we're not really existing alone in a little bubble here. That there are people who are living quite differently in different circumstances. So I, I love Noemi's poem that it captures this sense of there's uh, yeah there's I'm cutting this apple but there there's craziness going on. I love this little just one way to help us just a little bit expand the the circle of our sensitivity. This is some statistical thing. It says, if we could shrink the Earth's population to a village of precisely 100 people with all the existing human ratios remaining the same, it would look something like the following. 57 Asians, 21 Europeans, 14 from the Western Hemisphere, both North and South, 8 Africans, 52 would be female, 48 male, 70 would be non-white, 30 would be white. 70 would be non-Christian, not the same 70. 30 would be Christian, not the same 30. 89 would be heterosexual, 11 would be homosexual. Six people would possess 59% of the entire world's wealth. All six would be from the U.S., this is old information, by the way. 80 would, be live, would live in substandard housing. 70 would be unable to read. 50 would suffer from malnutrition. One would be near death. One would be near birth. One, yes, only one would have a college education. Does that wake you up at all? It's so easy to be asleep in our own, either our internal drama or in our whatever, our shroud of our, of our own cultural um, blindness. One would own a computer out of a hundred. Isn't that wild? Now this is, that's old news. I think it may be more now. Two. <laughs> If you woke up this morning with more health than illness, you are more blessed than the million who will not survive this week.
So mindfulness has this capacity to both be microscopic, detailed, allow us to, to with laser-like observing power, see deeply into the nature of reality. To, to understand in a very intimate way that we don't exist alone apart from everything else, that there is no one who truly has independent existence. We could not exist if it was not for the elements of earth, air, fire, water. Uh, we could not um, exist without all the, the plant life, the, all the, the atmospheric conditions. Everything depends on everything else that we do not live in this little vacuum of individuality. Yet at the same time, paradoxically, it takes our individuality and a, a settledness in our individuality to be able to see clearly, with clear comprehension, this world as it is. And then to respond to it in the way that, that inevitably happens, which is to respond with a sensitivity and a caring and a and the, the face of, of wisdom and understanding is uh, love and compassion. And that's not, um, and because we're not so developed at that mindfulness and clear comprehension, we also need to, to remind ourselves and cultivate those qualities as we, we train our hearts and minds to incline toward sensitivity, to incline toward goodwill, to incline toward appreciation and gratitude and being able to join with others in their happiness, to be able to join with them in their suffering. And we also train ourselves to be mentally, physically strong and fortified, to be able to sit in the middle of the inevitable joys and sorrows that will show up in our lives. So how do we do that? It starts by noticing those little moments of cutting the apple, of taking a step. The true secret of developing mindful attention is not in some ways, the formal practice, although I've, I'm about to talk more about that, but it is the, it's everything in between. It's the informal practices. It's knowing what we're doing with our hands. I noticed today while I was sitting in my office that I, I, um, I noticed that I started to kind of twiddle my thumbs a little bit or, you know, pick at my fingers or something. And then I, because I became aware of that, that became the cause of noticing, well, what's the state of mind that you're experiencing? You know, I'm, I was sitting listening to people and, so I, and talking to people, but I noticed these, these experiences. And, and partly the reason I noticed what I was doing with my hands is because I had made a practice in my formal practice and in my retreat practices of noticing what I do with my hands. And it, it enlivened moments that I would have been oblivious to. So it happens in very small ways. But knowing when I'm standing up, knowing when I'm sitting down, knowing when I'm turning, knowing when I'm walking down the street, down the hall, knowing when I'm turning on a faucet, noticing when I'm eating, noticing the burst of flavor, notice when I'm seeing. So all those sense experiences, these senses were made to wake us up. They're made to be, to be experienced. And it's amazing if you, if you use these senses as, as sources of, of mindful attention, they, interestingly enough, they become cleansed. They become cleansed 
so much that sights become vivid. Sounds become really more alive. Tasting food. I remember when I started to slow down and taste my food instead of just motoring through the next bite. The burst of flavor. I felt, besides feeling the joy of being able to taste for the first time in my life, I also felt a wave of grief for how much I had missed. Fortunately, I was only, at that time, I was only 21 years old or something. But I realized that at that 21 years old, I feel very lucky now when I think about it, but at the time it just blew my mind that it was the, there was the, I had the first moment of my life where I wasn't wishing I was somewhere else. I didn't realize that I was always planning the next thing and missing my life. I remember the very moment I was lying in a hammock and I was visiting my cousin down in Central America and I was in this little coffee shack and I realized, oh, this is the first time I've never, I didn't want to be somewhere else. That just, it seems so absurd. But that's literally, we can go through our lives missing the sense experience that's happening. So we call this, in formal practice, we call this, uh, this the periods in between formal and informal, between the, the formal periods of sitting and walking meditation, we call these periods informal periods, but we call the practice of, of maintaining mindfulness in all these different informal ways, we call this continuity. Continuity of mindfulness regardless of the posture, sitting, standing, moving, lying down, uh, all the same in terms of mindful attention. Clearly, the more mindful, the clearer our senses, the more awake to the reality of the present moment. And wouldn't it make sense that the more you're awake to the reality of the present moment, the more you notice? The more you notice, the more interesting it becomes. The more interesting it becomes, the more you're enlivened by it. The more you're enlivened by it, the more you want to, to be here. And the more you want to be here, the less you want to be somewhere else. Now if you're busy, if your life is one where you're busy making other plans all the time, or living in memory and regret, then uh, you may benefit by mindfulness. <laughs> As one teacher says, friends, just be mindful. Lack of mindfulness is a, as I think he said, is, a, is an ocean of pee. <laughs> is a cesspool. <laughs> Friends, please be mindful. <laughs> now, in the in the in the middle of the, I realize that time is a little short tonight, but this the middle of the noble eightfold path is purification of mind. Is includes the cultivation of mindful attention. It includes the cultivation of the unification of mind. The bring, what we did tonight, that bringing our mind together with the body, the unifying our mind and body to the extent where we are so 
deeply rooted in the immediate present that we begin to feel that deep connection with everything around us. And with that, with that feeling of connection comes the feeling of love, comes the feeling of affection. Sometimes meditation is described as mindfulness, mindfulness um, brings affection. How does that happen? Well, it turns out that when we bring our attention, this primordial, natural awareness, when we give it a focus on an object in the present moment, we utilize in our consciousness a quality that is called, it's that quality that allows us to focus. We, we, we can either have a, a wide, diffuse awareness or we can have a focused awareness. When this awareness is focused, I know I've done this before on Tuesday night, when I focus on Andrea sitting in front of me, I gather my attention to Andrea. And then, as I'm practicing, and you can, you can do this with anything. It's especially wonderful if you do it with a person and at least somebody who is willing to have you do this with them. <laughs> so be, be, have clear comprehension about this. So if I direct my attention to Andrea and I sustain that connection, these are two qualities, connecting and sustaining. May seem like we take it's so easy to take for granted that when we're involved in a project or in conversation with somebody, we're using this quality in our mind of connecting and sustaining. Well, it turns out that these two little qualities of connecting and sustaining, when they are made strong, they become the cause, they are a condition for three other qualities to come along for the ride with them, to grow with them. The third quality that comes with this connecting and sustaining is the quality of, if I stay with Andrea long enough, I will start to feel comfortable being with her or with whatever I'm doing. I'll start to, and I might feel that as a kind of, a kind of ease in my body, uh, a kind of falling away of the past, falling away of the worries about the future. I'm just here with Andrea. So there's a comfort with that. And because it's, because I'm, I'm engaged in something, with something in the living present. I notice I'm losing people here. But I'm connecting with something in the living present. So you can connect with me right now, if you can, with just listening or whatever. I'm connecting with something in the living present. And the reason I say the living present, because the present is alive. Reality is alive. And that's very different from past and future, which are mental. They don't exist, really. They're just fabrications. But the present is alive. And so I'm engaged, I'm connected, I'm sustained, and I'm, in, I'm comfortable, and I'm enlivened. And with enli being enlivened, I start to feel a, a, an energetic upsurge, and it's sometimes called rapture. And rapture is sometimes translated in terms of my attention as intense interest. So rapt attention. 
but energetically it's a kind of surging of, of life because I'm plugging into that inexhaustible current called life. And all I've done is connected and sustained with Andrea for a little bit. And then because I'm doing that in a sustained way, I start to feel this, that we enter into, a, into a, a, a kind of field of immediacy. Uh, I'm, everything else falls away and we experience a sense of one-pointedness and start to feel a connection with everything around us. Not, we don't feel separate anymore. We're just, just here with, with all of life in a way. And so that would be, that's called one-pointedness or ekagata. So that simple act of connecting with what you're doing, who you're with, whatever you're working on, being willing to go through whatever you need to do to connect, and then to stay there, it produces, it is, I call it the love muscle. It creates the conditions for us to then feel that, that loving connection, because I already start to feel affection and caring and uh, curiosity and all the, the qualities that are part of our affection. Is we want to know what's, we want to know the person or want to know more about whatever we're doing. And life opens up, all from that simple act of connecting. When this becomes very strong, this capacity to connect and sustain and to experience that rapture and that comfort and that one-pointedness becomes so exponentially strong that our life, as one teacher put it, he says when your mind is free of its preoccupations and you're actually here, your mind will become quiet. Anybody want a quiet mind? You can't quiet your mind, but connecting and sustaining, the byproduct of that is your mind quiets. So don't try to quiet your mind. Just connect and sustain. And he says, the same teacher, Nisargadatta, he says, if you, when your mind is momentarily or to some degree free of its preoccupations, it becomes quiet. And if you stay in that, you don't disturb it, you will discover that it's permeated with a light and a love you've never known, but you recognize it at once as your your natural state. You actually, can, your natural state is love, but it's become it's become clouded by lack of mindfulness and clear comprehension, lack of attention to the details of whatever you're doing. And so, the doorway back to love is uh, is this capacity to connect and sustain, not just on one thing. But on changing things, whatever, whatever enters your, your, your um, doors of perception, whatever enters your mind, can be used in behalf of developing the causes of love. And then next week, I'll talk about the wisdom side of what flows from, from this mindful attention. In one of the famous sutras or teachings of the Buddha, he said, if you make, if you make uh, this purification of actions very strong, if you dedicate your life to non-harming, it will make possible the purification of your mind. It will make possible your ability to, to stay here, to be awake and be mindful and not be so confused and clouded by the effects of your actions. 
And he finally says, if you make, if you purify your mind, if you develop mindfulness and concentration, you cultivate what, what's wholesome in your life, and that's the previous subject, you cultivate the wholesome, you maintain the wholesome, you stop doing the things that cause suffering, and you make your mental strength strong enough that you don't even, you're not even tempted to cause yourself or others suffering. If you make this mindfulness and concentration strong, it makes possible the, ar- the arising of wisdom, clear perception. Clear perception is what liberates, frees our hearts, and allows us to live in harmony with life. So the center of it all is the simple practice of mindful attention. So even as you leave here tonight, be aware of standing up, be aware of turning around, be aware of the, the context, clearly comprehend who you're with, who you've been practicing with. You might do a little stealth loving-kindness under your breath, wish everybody well. Then mindfully walk out. Uh, Notice going through a door. Notice walking down steps. Notice opening your car door if you drove. Notice sitting behind the wheel. You know, whatever it is that you do, be mindful. And at the same time, in your careful moment-to-moment mindfulness, don't forget that we, don't, that we live connected to all beings and all things. And in this neighborhood, this is a very diverse neighborhood. Don't be oblivious to who you're living beside, what their situation is. Expand your mindfulness so it has no limit, which is another way of saying expand your heart so it has no limit. So let our practice be the cause of happiness and well-being uh, for all beings everywhere, including ourselves, and let our dedication to awakening the causes of happiness in ourselves and others uh, our cause uh, for the year. Thanks so much for your practice. Let's just sit quietly for a moment. than at home. The forests are the rooms of the house of my childhood. The winds are my mother's arms. The sun is my child's laughter. The caterpillar crawling on my hand is my brother's arm thrown over my shoulder. The children playing in the street of another country are my children. The stranger's bed encloses me in the sleep of my covers. The earth is my home and its creatures are my family. There is no loneliness to overtake me, 
I am not stricken to find my home. I breathe interstellar space. The world is pasture for my mind, forage for my imagination. The universe is at home in my mind. Its creatures live friendly within me. I live warm and friendly with my fellows in the starry world. Thanks so much for being here, practicing. Thanks for your generosity. And um, hope to see you next week. Thank you. Please be mindful. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.